invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 13 as we continue our study in Judges. We come to the last judge in the book of Judges, uh, and his story gets the most written about it. Four chapters, 13 through 17, uh, the life of Samson. And here's what we're going to learn today. As I mentioned earlier, nothing matters if we do not meet Jesus personally. And we are going to see a couple that meets Jesus. Nothing matters if we do not meet Jesus personally. Being a good person does not matter. All the good practical principles in this world about how to have a successful life, no good if we do not meet Jesus. Judges chapter 13 Verses 1 through 7 is what we'll read initially, though we will make our way through the entire passage. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Judges 13, verses 1 through 7. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son." No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please, let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Please have a seat. An ordinary woman meets the angel of the Lord. In verse 1, the cycle of sin continues. Uh, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, We have shared before that in the sight or in the eyes of the Lord means in the opinion of the Lord. It's important that we dwell on this for just a second once again. The definition of sin is not what we think. It's not what a poll reveals. That's not what decides what sin is. It's not whatever community standards are. That's not how we define sin. The definition of sin is what God says sin is. This is one way, by the way, in which sin can be so deceptive. We can sin thinking that we're doing good. We can sin and not know or feel any guilt about it 
because we sincerely do not think that we have done anything wrong. And it is quite possible that the people of Israel have been so deceived that they have come to a place where they really don't know that what they're doing is wrong. And so, as is Pretty been pretty common in our study in Judges, when they do evil, in order to awaken them to the nature of their sin and the violation of God's holiness, the Lord gave the people of Israel into the hand of an enemy, the Philistines, for 40 years. But notice that this is different than what we've seen before. Before what we saw is they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they were given into the hand of an enemy. And then they cry out to the Lord in their oppression and help, and they turn from their ways, and the Lord raises up a judge who delivers them. Notice here, there is no repentance, even of a half-hearted nature. There's no cry for help. There's almost the idea, we're going to try to do this on our own. Have you ever seen a culture that was so far away from God that they didn't even acknowledge that they needed Him, that they'd come to a place they didn't need His help? We're going to do this. We're going to get out of this mess on our own. In this, we get a feeling about this saga to come as we're going to read these chapters in the weeks ahead. This saga about Samson, we get a feeling, a foreboding, a foreshadowing, if you will, that this is going to have a dreadful end, that it might even lead to more disasters. And what we will find is in Samson a man who has a weakness for immorality, for beer, believe it or not. I'll attempt to prove that archaeologically a man who is willing to violate his calling from God, a man who has personal vengeance as kind of the primary motivating factor of his life, and who in the end gets himself killed with no defeat of the enemy and no rest for the people of Israel. Now, out of that national problem that we see in verse 1, we are immediately drawn in verse 2 to one house in one little tiny Israelite town, a national crisis of long-standing, that's just big and huge problem, were brought in verse 2 to a little town of Zorah and one family, a guy named Manoah and his wife. In the middle of this national problem, this couple has a problem of deep hurt. They are infertile. Now, as soon as you see a place name there in verse 2, a certain man of Zorah, you know what I'm going to do, don't you? We're going to look at a map and let's see where this Zorah is. And we are in the land that is between Philistine territory to the west, this is where the Philistines live, and the Judean hill country, which is over here on the east, this is Bethlehem and 
Jerusalem and all of that along this spine of the hill country, and this land in between it called the Shvelah, it means lowland hills, that's the area that the Philistines and the Israelites are going to fight over for several generations to come. The story of David and Goliath is going to happen here. And Samson is from this territory. He, we find out that this man Manoah is from this little area of a twin city of Zorah and Eshtaol, circled in red here. It's in the Sorek Valley, which is underlined in blue, uh, just south of a place called Beit Shemesh, which will become important to us in just a second. And these green areas underlined are just sites that we're going to encounter next week in chapter 14. Uh, let me show you a couple of pictures here. This is from this town of Beit Shemesh looking north into the area of Zorah and Eshtaol. You see these lowland hills. And if you look to the west, you'll see that it's opening out into a big plain, which is where the Philistines lived, a wide, flat area where they grow lots of grain, okay? And so it's this context in which Manoah and his wife encounter the Lord. You might ask, and I'll say it once again, why I show maps and pictures. It is because we need to understand that these are not cleverly devised fables. They are not made-up stories, but they are actual things that actually happen to real people in a real place at a real time. Christianity stands or falls on its historicity and its geography. No other religion in the world stands or falls on such a thing, but Christianity does. If you say these things are not true, Christianity is not true. If, on the other hand, they are true, then you need to consider maybe God the Father really sent God the Son to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins, and maybe He actually rose from the dead so that we can go to heaven to be with God forever. That's why I show maps and pictures. The Lord has given Israel into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, but out of that national crisis, we are encountering now a couple that live in a tiny town, a, a, a backwater place, a place no one would know or consider had we not had a story like this in, in, the, in the Scriptures. And this couple has a personal problem. It's a personal problem that's of deep hurt. They're infertile, and the pain of childlessness in our own culture has varying degrees of pain. Many people feel the same hurt that Manoah and his wife had. For others, um, some couples even choose to be childless. But others, it's a pain that only they themselves can fully comprehend. It's it's difficult for us in 21st century Western society to comprehend just how devastating childlessness was in the time of the judges. One did not live for himself in ancient Israel. One lived in order to pass on the land and an inheritance and a legacy for one's children. This was at least in part the purpose of one's existence. 
to fail at that, and it did feel like failure for Manoah and his wife, meant that somehow life was less fulfilling, less worthy, and less blessed. So it would be shocking to the first readers of Judges to be introduced to this couple. Out of this national crisis, we're introduced to an infertile couple. Out of this national crisis, it's even more shocking that they're the ones that the angel of the Lord chooses to visit at this time in Israel. In fact, it's made triply shocking because the angel of the Lord does not appear to the man at first. He appears to the woman. God's love and affections are so amazing, he chooses the lowly, the broken, the hurting to do his remarkable work. Verses 3 through 5, the angel of the Lord has three messages. The first message is a message of stipulation of facts. He's just telling them facts. Look, look, you are barren and have not born children. Mrs. Manoah had to think, well, thank you very much. I already know that. What, What kind of a message is that? The second message is a message of hope. You will conceive and bear a son. I want you to think for a moment about other places in the Bible where this is said. It was said about the births of Isaac, of Samuel, of John the Baptist, and of our Lord Jesus. Each of the first three stories, Isaac, Samuel, John the Baptist, and this one of Samson, all have the shame of infertility attached to them, the pain of disappointment of something that is somehow wrong with their world. The birth of Jesus and its announcement, however, is not carrying the shame of infertility and the pain of that disappointment. Instead, it is announcement of a birth that after the birth is going to cause shame and the pain of the cross. First message is a message of stipulation of facts. Second message, a message of hope. You're going to conceive and bear a son. The third message is a message of mission. God never brings hope without also bringing a mission. And the mission here in verse 5 is, well, verse 3, you will conceive and bear a son Verse 4, be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. That's the message. Be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. Verse 5 is a restatement of the message of hope and of mission. You'll conceive and bear a son. No razor on his head. He'll be a Nazarite to God from his womb. And I say, wait a minute, what's a Nazarite? Ah, you got to go back and read Numbers chapter 6, and you'll see that there's a few differences here. But there were three vows of a Nazarite, and the Nazarite vow was typically a temporary vow that someone would make in order to be able to say to God, I'm serious. I'm really serious about this thing. And the three things that a Nazarite, that were part of a Nazarite vow, according to Numbers chapter 6, no wine or strong drink, um, eat nothing 
uh, produced by grapes. Um, no razor touches head, and don't touch anything dead. And so here in Judges 13, no razor on his head, he'll be a Nazarite to God from the womb. The not cutting of hair and not having any alcohol are ways of being, as Tim Keller notes, in training for a goal. You're in training, and so you're going to do things that will be disciplining in order to get to your goal. The not touching of dead things is similar to the command for all priests. It is to live a life separated unto God. Now, in number six, the Nazarite vow was a temporary thing. You would do it for a time, and then you would be done with it. But the intention here, according to the word of the angel of the Lord, is that Samson would be a Nazarite for his entire life. And, get this, be careful of how you read the Bible because it reveals things to you. Some people say, well, the Bible never says that life begins at conception. Since life begins at conception, the rule of life changes for Mrs. Manoah from conception. Do you read, do you see it there? Verse 3, your barren have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. You're going to conceive, therefore, before you conceive, start doing these things. Be careful, drink no wine, strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he'll begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's why the angel of the Lord appears to her before the conception of Samson. Samson is under the Nazarite vow even before he is born, and he'll begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verses 6 and 7, the woman tells her husband what happened. And I want you to notice something very carefully here in verse 6. Out of all the things that the woman could say to her husband first, Notice what she says. She is more impressed by the nature of the man who appeared to her than she is by the angel of the Lord's message. She does not go to the woman and say, uh, go to her husband and say, I'm going to have a baby, which you would think or expect. But that's not her focus. Notice her focus is on the nature of the one who appeared to her. The man of God came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. In fact, he was so impressive, I didn't ask some significant questions that I'm sure you're going to ask me. Has that ever happened to you in your relationship with your spouse? Where something very impressive happens to you and you're so in awe of it that later when you relate it to your spouse, your spouse starts asking you questions and you have no clue because you didn't even think to ask that. Well, did you know that blah, blah, blah? Or did they say blah, blah, blah? I don't know. I don't know. Mrs. Manoa anticipates this. She anticipates that Mr. Manoa is going to have some questions. She says, I didn't ask him where he's from. He didn't tell me his name. Because chances are good they've had a few conversations like that before in their marriage, right? The woman then, after describing the nature of the one who appeared to her, then repeats the message of the angel of the Lord, you'll conceive and bear a son. Imagine how Manoah would think of that. No wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. The child would be a Nazarite to God. 
his entire life. Let's think about applications here. First, how do national and international problems and your personal problems intersect? Because that's what's happening here. We have a national crisis in Israel intersecting with the infertility problem that Manoah and Mrs. Manoah face. Did you know that God takes an interest in both? God's interested in these big cosmic issues that are going on in our troubled, crazy world these days, and He's also interested in you and your personal problems and how those intersect. Second application, God looks upon the lowly, and we are all lowly. We're all from Zora. We're all lowly. Third, all salvations in the Bible, and there are lots of salvations, lots of ways in which God delivers, right? Lots of ways. All salvations in the Bible are amazing works of God, but all of them are incomplete apart from the cross. We're going to see a deliverance after a fashion of Israel from the hand of the Philistines in these next few chapters, but, and it'll be an amazing work of God but it will be incomplete. It will leave us hanging. It will leave us longing for more. And the only thing that will completely satisfy and fulfill is Jesus Christ and the salvation He brings at the cross. Fourth application, let's be more impressed by the nature of God than by His telling us the future. The Bible does tell us about the future, but let's be more impressed by the nature of God than we are by the future. The Lord told Mrs. Manoah the future. You're going to conceive and bear a son. But the first thing out of her mouth when she meets up with her husband isn't, I'm going to have a baby. It is instead, I met a man of God who looked like the angel of God. Very awesome. Let's all be more fascinated and intent upon knowing the nature of God than we are of knowing the future. Fifth, note that there is no doubt, no doubting from either Manoah or his wife. They don't doubt the word from God. They take God at his word. That's a helpful thing for us in these days, to take God at his word. And then lastly, life begins at conception, and the Bible does speak of it. Let's look at verses 8 through 14 now, and we'll see an ordinary husband meets the angel of the Lord. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? 
And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink strong, drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Ordinary husband meets the angel of the Lord. Manoah prays in verse 8 for two things. Please, let the man of God come to us again. That was his first prayer. Second, let him teach us what we are to do with the child who is to be born. Notice he believes the message. He just wants to do what's right. And notice that Manoah and Mrs. Manoah are amazingly godly people in the middle of a culture of just unbelievable corruption. Unlike the patriarchal women, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, they have not obsessed over their infertility. They have not complained about their condition. They have not tried tricky means in order to obtain a child. They did not, like Rachel did, experiment with drugs in order to get pregnant. They do not even pray for a baby. And remarkably enough, even Mrs. Manoah remains unnamed in our story despite her, her key role in it. In fact, while her husband seems, as Abraham Curavella puts it, quite dense, it is the woman who is spiritually more perceptive here in this story. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord listens to Manoah. The angel of the Lord comes again to the woman as she sat in the field. And you wonder, well, what is she doing there? I'm going to say she's praying and worshiping. That's my guess. The text doesn't say. But of course, you know, she had to think, oh, wouldn't you know it, while I'm not with my husband, that's when the guy shows up. She runs quickly, verse 10, and gets her husband. And in verse 11, Manoah asks the man if he was the one who had appeared earlier, and the man affirms that it is. And notice in verse 12, Manoah again affirms his belief in God's message. When your words come true, he believes the message. What is to be the child's manner of life and his mission? Those are great questions for all of us to ask the Lord as parents, right? What is to be the child's manner of life? And what is to be his mission? Interestingly, in verses 13 and 14, the angel of the Lord does give instructions to Benoah, but they are not to do with the child. Instead, they are to do with the parents. Let your wife be careful to do all that I said, namely no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Obey it all. All that I've commanded her, let her observe. There are some questions that, by way of application, we may want to ask ourselves here. Do we believe God like Manoah and his wife believed God? Do we take God at his word like that? Second, do we ever ask God to come again? You know, we may have personal encounters with the living God. Do we ever say, oh, Lord, do it again? As we think about, have you prayed for revival in your church here, East White Oak Bible Church, this week? Did you pray for revival for the Lord to come in power and the Holy Spirit upon us? 
Did you ask this week the Lord to come again to your family in renewal and change? Do we ask the Lord to come again like Manoah asked? Third question, do we ask God to reveal to us the manner of life and mission of our children? Do we ask that question? Lord, what's to be the manner of life and the mission of my children? Manoah asked that. Now, all of us who are parents are keenly interested in how to raise our children, aren't we? But the last question of application is perhaps the most important one for those of you who are parents. Are we interested in being the right parents more than we are interested in raising the right children? Are we more interested in being the right parents than we are in raising the right children? Are we interested in a relationship with the living God rather than the so-called practical rules of child-rearing. Manoah wanted some rules. Help me know what to do with the child. What's his mission and manner of life? And God instead gave him an intimate relationship, the living God appearing to him and telling them, you should just make sure your wife does what I told her to do. So now let's look at verses 15 through 25. What does it mean to meet the angel of the Lord? We've been talking about this angel of the Lord. Who is he and what does it mean to meet him? 8, 15 through 25. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. What does it mean to meet the angel of the Lord? Well, some folks in the Old Testament who have met the angel of the Lord are Hagar, Abraham at Mount Moriah, Moses at the burning bush, Balaam uh, in order to stop him from doing his things. It is, as I have suggested in previous weeks, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. Let me unpack that for you and to attempt to prove that to you. First, 
the word wonderful. Uh, Manoah asks his name, and he says, why do you want to know my name? Since it's wonderful. This is a word that's repeated in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, in a predictive nature about Jesus Christ coming. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The angel of the Lord says to Manoah, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And when Manoah makes the offering in the next verse, verse 19, it says, he offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. So, he's offering something to the Lord who works wonders, and this being that appears to Manoah says he's wonderful. Do you get the connection? It is the Lord himself somehow in a human form predicting of Jesus in Isaiah 9 suggests that this is Jesus in human form. Another thing that happens here is the angel of the Lord appears quite frequently in the Old Testament. He never appears after the conception of Mary. After after Jesus is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the angel of the Lord never appears again. Now, there are places where it says an angel of the Lord appears, but never the angel of the Lord. Another dimension here, this angel in Judges 13 demands and accepts worship while other angels that appear to people forbid worship. Consider Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush. Bush burning, it's not consumed. Moses stops to check it out, and the angel of the Lord says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The worship of the angel of the Lord suggests that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, God. And Manoah understands this because you see in verse 22, after he figures it out, it is the angel of the Lord. He says, we're going to die. We have seen God. God has somehow come in a human form. In Revelation chapter 19, John, as he's been revealed all these things by an angel, says, I fell down to worship this angel, but the angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Similarly, in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, John again falls down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed these things to me. He said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So what we have here is the angel of the Lord is a being entirely different than other angels. This is Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form come to visit Manoah and Mrs. Manoah in Zorah in the Shephelah of Israel in a time when the Philistines were dominating the people. Unbelievable. When you bring Old Testament and New Testament texts together, you see also that this is, in fact, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 6, Uzziah, when the year Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. 
He says, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then there is this mission given in verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6 that the Lord says, go, say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And you might say, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, in John chapter 12, verses 39 to 41, John writes, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. And then John says in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, referring to Jesus. He saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. My friends, Manoah and Mrs. Manoah met Jesus, and nothing else matters if you do not meet Jesus. There's blessings here. Think about the angel of the Lord being Jesus, and remember our verses that we began our service with in Psalm 34. It's so beautiful. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Jesus is our sacrifice and our deliverer, but He is also our Creator. He is the angel of the Lord. And in 2 Kings 19.35, the angel of the Lord came and the Assyrians had the, Jude, the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, surrounded. They had a, a hundreds of thousands of troops there surrounding Jerusalem. And Judah was dead and they cried out a panic prayer, help! And the angel of the Lord came, 2 Kings 19.35, and I love how it says it in one version. I think it's the New American Standard. It says, behold, when the 185,000 Assyrians woke up the next day, behold, they were all dead. <laughs> we're dead, right? There's something remarkable about the angel of the Lord. He's the creator. He's the destroyer of the, of the Assyrians, it magnifies Jesus Christ's grace and love for us, does it not? To know that this powerful messenger of the Lord is our Savior. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might be rich. He's the messenger of God, and He is God Himself. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, God the Father says to Malachi, I send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me. He's sending John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Manoah realizes who he's been talking with. 
Verse 15, he's thankful. He wants to share a meal. Perhaps the sharing of a meal is a sense of fellowship, but also perhaps feeding brings a sense of obligation, a tit-for-tat kind of thing. And so the angel says, uh, uh, actually, it's Jesus, right? No meal, but I will accept worship. He says, what's your name? Verse 17, to know the name of someone is to define him. But God, verse 18, can't be put in a box, at least not the one that others make for him. The mystery of godliness, God in human form has come. It's wonderful and he will make his name known. He is the God of wonders and the flame goes up and the angel of the Lord goes up with the flame, reminding us of the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, and also probably, if you think about Acts chapter 1, the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And as that happens, Manoah and his wife, knowing what they have encountered, fall to the ground. Manoah knows it's the angel of the Lord now, and he knows he's a dead man walking. We have seen God, and he's half right, you know. He has seen God, and if it were up to just his own character and nature, he's going to die for it. He deserves death, but he doesn't die. A sharp-thinking companion is a good thing to have, isn't it? And uh, Mrs. Manoah is a sharp-thinking companion. She reasons well here in verse 24, uh, or verse 23. If he intended to kill us, three things. He would not have accepted our offering. He wouldn't have shown us all these things. And he wouldn't have announced to us all that's going to happen. Mrs. Manoah understands grace. And so, Mrs. Manoah, verse 24, has a son, and they call his name Samson, which means little son, S-U-N. Uh, I love the Hebrew pronunciation of Samson, Shimshon. That sounds a little more dramatic, Shimshon. You know. He grows, and the Lord blesses him, the only person in Judges of whom this is said. He's the last judge another of what will be a long line of last great hopes, many broken hopes in Israel. Verse 25, the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir him. Again, the only person in Judges of whom this is said. But remember how the Spirit works in the Old Testament. The Spirit comes mightily on Samson in chapters 14 and 15, which enables Samson to accomplish amazing feats of strength and heroism, yet not once does Samson give credit to God? In fact, in chapter 16, verse 20, the Lord leaves Samson and he will not even be aware that the Lord has left him. Three applications that we want to draw here as we finish. First, did you notice the Trinity here? You have the Lord at work you have the angel of the Lord, Jesus in pre-incarnate form, and you have the Spirit of God stirring Samson for work. Secondly, we need to know God and His character more than we need information about child rearing. The number of principles and rules and guidelines and patterns for success, they sell books and they are endless. 
But what we need as parents is a deep understanding of the nature of God made known through the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As Tim Keller notes, we think we need rules, but we need to know God. Samson, unlike the other judges, was unusually blessed. Ehud was despised for being left-handed. Barak was timid and sought the help of others in order to engage in the mission God had given him. Gideon was a minor person in his family. Jephthah was the outcast son of a prostitute. But Samson, Samson was from a great family. His mother and his father were obedient to the Lord and longed to raise their son the right way. He was dedicated to God from before he was born. He had multiple endowments of strength from the Holy Spirit. If there ever was a human being who could save us, it was this glorious Samson. And yet, And yet this will be a tale of sadness, of compromise, of dereliction of duty, of blaming, and ultimately of lost opportunity for the salvation of Israel. You might ask the question, why is this here? Why are Judges 13 to 17 in the Bible? It is here because we need to know there is only one Savior. And his name is Jesus. Nothing matters if we do not meet Jesus personally. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would help us all to meet you personally. Yes, in faith, believing that you forgave us of our sins by what you did at the cross, repenting of our sins and looking to Christ alone for salvation. But also, Lord, help us to meet Jesus over and over and over again, to know that knowing you is more important than having seven principles for right parenting, that being the right parent is way better than trying to make the right kid, that you would help us, Lord, in this trying moment in our world's history, to know how we walk with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.